I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we're talking to Edward Isaac DeVere, a staff writer for The Atlantic, its lead political correspondent, and the author of a new book just out called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. You know, it's an odd conversation for me. I was a primary actor in this play (laughs) uh, as Bernie's campaign manager. Uh, Obviously, I was one of the actors who was seeking to defeat Donald Trump. So it'll be fun to have a conversation. I read the book, and I, I feel like it has a lot of truths to it and parts of stories that obviously have more to it (laughs) that I'm aware of. Baz, I think it's worth asking a bigger question here, which is in an ideal world, what is the role of the political press in this process? I would love a political press that was very interested in outcomes and policy and personnel to the extent personnel plays a role to the extent that, you know, there's outcomes attached to them. How would Joe Biden govern? You know, let's look at some of the people around him. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would his policy do for people? That type of journalism is not terribly exciting for a lot of political reporters. I I think there's some who just don't find policy as intriguing (laughs) and to cover and do find the gossip of campaigns and the process of campaigns and the ups and downs of campaigns, the tensions within campaigns as more interesting, more like a, a version of a soap opera, a journey along the path. And what I think sometimes gets lost is that that journey is critical to the lives of millions of people. And instead, it feels like some of that can become very insular, that the journalism is really meant to take a group of 500 people and say, hey, look at this little ecosystem that operates Mm -hmm. within it and the various characters and how they think about each other. Well, fine, but work that you're doing has meaningful impact for millions. And what does that say about how you would govern, what policies we'd pursue? I think that that tends to get lost. And I think it gets really messy because I would like to assume that most reporters would also like to cover the impact on people. But the incentive structures, which we've talked about in many other different buckets of this work, are so skewed in that they do have to create a story every day. They have to give us a new soap opera episode every day. And they need those episodes, those soap opera moments to go far, to get a big audience. And the things that get a big audience and the things that are maybe more important to talk about are not always a perfect overlap. But I do think at least many of the reporters I've talked to, you know, casually have said, I wish I could cover this. There isn't an audience for it. And I do sometimes think it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg and that we've trained people to want the conflict and now we have to give it to them every single day, which is hard. Amanda, I think you were mentioned in uh, Isaac DeVere's book. Is that true? It is. I talked to him about the work that we did on Run for Something and he wrote about us glowingly. So obviously it's 100% accurate. It's, It's definitely a little disorienting to read about yourself. And even four years into doing this, I haven't quite come to terms with it. You have been in the press a long time and have been written about many times. How do you feel about the process? You know, I've generally found that because I'm not eager to go out and tell my story, as it were, you kind of leave the terrain to other people to tell Mm -hmm. the story. So I end up being more reactive and hearing yeah, that wasn't quite right. That wasn't right. But then I, you know, it's my fault, right? I didn't didn't talk about it. So you kind of live with the consequences. But my ethic has generally been like, listen, I'd rather maintain professional integrity about working for a boss and a principal who knows I'm not going to go around them and share internal 
deliberations and gossip about others in an effort to try to retain professional integrity. And as a result, that sometimes leaves the playing field to others to tell a story. Up until I started Run for Something, I had never talked to a reporter before because when I worked for Obama and then for Hillary, like that was the ethos. No drama. You do not leak. It is not your job. And you would get in big trouble if you talk to a reporter without it being a part of your job description. I remember the day we launched Run for Something, I got a call from a reporter and I freaked out. I paced around my apartment. My dog was so confused. It was really scary. And I ended up doing some media training later, but I had no idea what the fuck I was doing talking about Run for Something and talking about my experiences that had led me to creating the organization. It was terrifying. Yeah. And people will drag you into narratives that you aren't comfortable uh, pursuing. You know, some of the best advice I got was actually from a reporter who became a friend um, who told me, like, I have a boss who demands content. Either you give me the content I'm going to write or I'm going to find the content from somewhere else and you're probably not going to like it. So help me make my job easier. And I've really tried to internalize that as part of my ethos with dealing with the press is how can I be a resource to them that also serves my ultimate goals? One of the things that you know, I observed during the course of our campaign is working with our communications director, Mike Casco, was if we could take things that we were doing and frame them as scoops, mm-hmm. <laughs> exclusives, insider looks, even though, quite frankly, they weren't that hot, reporters love that stuff. Yeah, and as much as I can, especially when it's low stakes for me, I try to give it to them because then when I really need something to be handled carefully or to knock it out, you have some of the relationship built there that goes a long way. I agree with that too. And because I'm not eager to divulge, I've always felt that the best thing I can do is respect the role that they play and simply say, hey, no comment. You know, I, it's not mm-hmm. that I, I don't hate you. It's just merely <laughs> that I have a job to do and you have a job to do. And right now we don't overlap <laughs> in the Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to Isaac, I want to remind you all listeners to please uh, reach out to us. We'd like to hear from you. Please leave us a voicemail at 929-399-6748. Or email us at battleground at the recount.com. And if you have ideas on Republicans or folks from opposing viewpoints we should talk to, we would love your advice. All right. Before we get into it with Isaac, Amanda, I'm wondering what is on your mind this week? In the last week or so, some pretty egregious legislation has moved its way through the Texas state legislature that really dictates what kind of curriculums Texas public schools can teach. And in essence, whitewashes them entirely. And I think this story is so, so, so important in no small part because it is part of the Republican Party's effort to build sustainable power. They have been doing this through voter suppression, which you and I have talked about before and changing who can vote. The effect on curriculums changes what our future voters are learning and lays the groundwork for ultimately lifelong Republican voters by teaching them a very skewed understanding of the history of race in America. And it's something that's so personal, especially in their effort to, you know, to speak in broad strokes to win back suburban women. Talking about schools and talking about what your kids are learning in the classroom is a very personal way to come at that when you can't otherwise talk about the economy or anything else pretty meaningful. Yeah. Um, Faz, what's on your mind this week? I'm interested in how this fight over the filibuster is going to go, especially with the fight over a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th terrorist insurrection at the Capitol. And obviously, the House has passed this commission with dozens of House Republican votes. Now it heads over to the Senate where Mitch McConnell's declared that the Republicans in the Senate will not 
be party to this. And so Joe Manchin said last week that he'd like to find 10 good, solid patriots in the Senate Republican conference to support this bipartisan commission. I think it's a good test. And I venture to guess, Amanda, that there aren't 10 good, solid patriots. But hey, let's employ that test. Let's see how that one goes and hold Joe Manchin to it. Because if they aren't, I believe that we can all rightly demand that Joe Manchin understand that it is 50 Democratic votes that is the future of passing anything worth passing in the Senate. You could maybe find five. 100%. All right, Faz, enough of shooting the shit. All right. We are talking to Isaac DeVere about his juicy new gossip book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Isaac, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Amanda referred to your book, and she'll (laughs) chime in in a moment about it, uh, as a juicy gossip book. Did I get that right, Amanda? I I say that with full um, flattery. I loved it. I'm also a messy bitch who lives for drama, so I loved it. Isaac, reactions to being a juicy gossip tell-all. I mean, I, I'll take that. I hope you also found some substance and meaning I in did. it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did. Try, I tried to tell a good story, by the way, a good story which includes both of you mm-hmm. at different points in it. So this is a unique interview for me, I think, in the book tour. <laughs> Tables are turned. Isaac, I would argue to you that the most relevant and interesting elements of your book did not involve any of the candidates. And the reason I say that is because there's certain person who retains an importance in the Democratic Party. I have long believed that former President Barack Obama is a key guider of the Democratic Party. If you go all the way back to his post-presidency, right as he's exiting the presidency, he wades into the fight over the future of the Democratic National Committee, urges against Keith Ellison as the chair, and moves towards Tom Perez, who obviously wins with the president's backing. And then at a number of points over the course of the primary, obviously placed his finger on the scale in different ways. And then in, in, in my view, President Biden and now becoming president, one of his strengths always was that he was the vice president to Barack Obama. And in your book, I think we have the most disclosure of the former president's role in the whole process. Do you want to take a moment to talk about the former president? Uh, yeah, I think it maybe takes more than a few moments to talk about the former <laughs> president, because you're absolutely right. He, um, he was done in 2016. He thought, that's it. I'm going to go run my foundation. Hillary Clinton's going to be president. I'll like show up to a couple of events or something and live my private life. He definitely had a feeling of like, I worked hard. I've thrown myself into this for 10 years. I'm finished. And of course, uh, starting on election night, uh, that very quickly changed. And then you see his process uh, over the next couple months of saying like, "Eh, maybe this isn't going to be so bad to like, oh, no, like this is really bad. And moving more and more over the Trump years in a way that I think actually parallels what was going on with Democrats overall, right? Right. Where it was like, this is crazy that Trump won. And then Democrats were like, well, maybe we'll survive by the time that Trump was sworn in, certainly by Inauguration Day with the American Carnage speech. It was like freaking out. And then it seemed to get crazier and crazier to the point that by the end of the campaign in 2020, Obama was existentially frightened 
as I think a lot of Democrats were, and not just Democrats, uh, right? And so he was key in that way in the Democratic mentality. And as you point out, he was also stepping in quietly, talking to a lot of the candidates, including Senator Sanders. But often Joe Biden was calling him up and just saying, like, what do you think I should do now? And Obama was sort of like his political therapist through the election. The thing I found particularly interesting about Obama's participation in this, at least as described in your book, is he was kind of undecided for a while, too. He bounced around a little bit from Beto to maybe a little flash crush on Mayor Pete's campaign to Elizabeth Warren, like sort of jumped from here to there. And it's a similar undercurrent, which I find to be so interesting in your book of like, there are no more gatekeepers. You paint a portrait of like a dinner with a bunch of pack and super pack heads trying to talk about how do we control this? How do we rein this in? And the answer is there's no answer with a similar undercurrent of how (laughs) terrible Tom Perez's job was over the last four years. Yeah, it was not an easy job. And and there's a quote from one of the people who was at that dinner, which happened in the end of 2018. It's the day that Nancy Pelosi is formally elected speaker by like internally in the House Democratic Caucus. She then is at a dinner with like all of the big donors and, you know, Chuck Schumer. And it's like the kind of dinner that like people sometimes (laughs) assume is true. And then you're like, that doesn't happen. That's in the movies. But really it was. And by the way, you know, Faz will get a kick out of this. Part of the theme of that dinner was like, how do we stop Bernie Sanders from being the Democratic nominee? Uh, What? Uh, I know. (laughs) I'm sure that shocks you. The rest of the Democratic Party (laughs) wasn't excited about Bernie Sanders becoming the potential nominee? So part of it was like, how do we stop so many people from running? Because if so many people run, then he's going to run away with it. And Guy Cecil, who runs the uh, Priority Super PAC, who is one of the people at the dinner, I talked to him about it. And he is quoted in the book saying to me afterwards, that night was like the last time that people who thought that they could control things, uh, they, they gave up on it after that. They realized that they couldn't. And yeah, there were no gatekeepers. And Obama then was in this position. It's a weird spot that he was in, because again, he didn't want it. To go back to what you were saying, Faz, about like the DNC chair race, Obama... Like, he was on his way out. He, he doesn't have to think about the DNC chair. He never cared about the DNC when he was president. And all of a sudden, Keith Ellison is running, and he's obviously one of Bernie Sanders' closest allies, was an accomplished congressman in his own right at that point. Um, he's got on to much more as AG in Minnesota. And he had a very distinct view of what the DNC should do. And Obama looks at this, and he says... I was supposed to be on a boat. Like, now I have to elect a <laughs> DNC chair. Um, and there's a line from someone who spent a lot of time talking to Obama in those days who says that Obama felt like the parent teaching his kid how to ride a bike has to put his hand back on the seat for a little bit. And he does that by saying, we can't have Keith Ellison. We're going to put Tom Perez in there. And then doing very quietly things to set this story uh, well, the way that he wanted that, to be. That very quietly, there was a key moment in the Democratic primary. You remember it well. We all do. Post the South Carolina results. Did not go as well for us as we had hoped. Right. Within days, there's a consolidation against Bernie Sanders. Happens very quickly. Pete Buttigieg drops out of the race, despite having won, or at least arguably won. I would argue we won <laughs> Iowa, but whatever. He won. Uh, he, he, he got a, he got, we won the popular vote. It's true. That's true. <laughs> right. Ask Hillary uh, and, Clinton how that worked out for yes. her, though. And then, <laughs> I, we're not talking and, about the 2016 Iowa caucuses. I don't then, engage in this. Continue so fast. After, <laughs> so Buttigieg drops out, despite having arguably won an Iowa caucus, and then... We have Amy Klobuchar dropping out very quickly. You have Beto O'Rourke jumping in to endorse, Harry Reid jumping in to endorse, all really happening within uh, the same 24-hour period. What happened there, Isaac? Well, there were... Behind the scenes. Look, that was a very strange period. But... 
I think what happened there, it's the kind of speed and development that often feeds conspiracy thinking. Right. And I know that there was a lot of feeling among Sanders supporters and even some people on the Sanders campaign that this must have been Obama calling up Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and saying, you're done. Like, we're stopping this. That is not what happened. Obama did not do it. But he has the sort of Svengali effect on people, especially Democrats. So he didn't quite say to Pete Buttigieg, you're done. He did call Pete Buttigieg oh. and say, what are you thinking about doing? <laughs> and, right, um, right. Because he saw a path for Pete Buttigieg and he just wanted to discuss no, 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 what that path to winning might look like. It was after <laughs> – Buttigieg decides on his own to drop out. But it was after it was public that he was dropping out that Obama calls him and checks in. And Buttigieg says to him, look, I think I'm going to go with Biden. Let me sleep on it. Everything in those couple of days happened so, so quickly. South Carolina was on a Saturday. Super Tuesday was Tuesday, obviously. But that Sunday in between was the anniversary of the march on Selma, the Bloody Sunday march, where most of the candidates, not Senator Sanders, were scheduled to be. But that day, Klobuchar also knows that it's not going to work out for her. And she was sitting in church at Brown Memorial Chapel And she was sitting there and thinking, like, that's it. Like, it's not going to work out. I got to drop out. Uh, When she landed in the airport in Selma, which is, of course, a small airport, she had waited for Buttigieg's plane to come because she wanted, despite the fact that she and Buttigieg had this, like, very, I mean, I think frenemy is generous to describe their relationship. They had a really contentious relationship. They did have some connection, and they both knew, like, it's over and probably had to drop out. She wanted to talk to Buttigieg, but Buttigieg had made a stop in Georgia to go see Jimmy Carter. Um, <laughs> and and Jimmy Carter tells him to drop out. Jimmy Carter says, Pete, you're done. Um, <laughs> and so he doesn't get there in time to talk to Klobuchar. But she sits in church. She says, I'm going to drop out basically when this is done. So when they're marching, at that point already, Buttigieg and Klobuchar know that they're through. And what then happens is that Klobuchar basically wanted to make sure she was out and endorsing Biden first. So she was the leader on it. But then Buttigieg wanted to make sure that he had a really cool endorsement event. So the Super Tuesday rally that Biden had in Dallas, they scheduled it so that Buttigieg and Biden showed up at a chicken restaurant like (laughs) an hour before the rally started so that there would be a separate event of Pete Buttigieg saying, I endorse Joe Biden. So it was not it was not orchestrated, except that it was kind of like implied orchestrated. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be back with Isaac Dover in his new book in a second. Welcome back to Battleground. Isaac, one of the things that you get at in your book, and you talk about basically every candidate and elected official, is the divide between their public persona and who they are behind doors. It's one of the things I really enjoy about your reporting. I think you capture that really well. Of the folks you cover most intensely, whose sort of dissonance there would most surprise people? You know, I've written a lot about the divergence in the public and private persona of Kamala Harris, including Mm -hmm. in an article that I had out in the Atlantic, you know, not that's not from the book. And she 
she hates the word cautious or careful or guarded. She hates all those words. But there's a reason why they often get used about her, because that is how her public persona often comes across. It's not who she is in private. There are a bunch of moments in the book where you see her cursing, you see her anxious about things, worried, emotional, in the lead up to that first debate where she took the legs out from Biden. If you remember the context of that, Biden had said that comment about how he'd worked with segregationist senators, and that caused the whole big thing. And then she knew that she was going to do that, that little girl is me busing attack on him. When she hears about Biden saying the segregationist senator thing, she's not like that bastard. Her reaction is like, oh, no, like, why did he have to go do that? And like concerned because she has some personal feeling toward him. They know each other a little bit. She knew his son, Bo, well. Concerned that, like, maybe this is the leader of the Democratic Party who's coming and, like, oh, he's doing this. And she doesn't really know what to do with it. She's upset with it. And then she turns it into a political attack and says, like, you know, those senators never would have wanted me to be in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And when they decide, okay, this is the attack, there's a moment when one of the consultants stops the conversation and says, you know, if you do this, you're going to piss him off and mm-hmm. you're going to hurt him and you're probably never going to be vice president with him and you're never going to be in the cabinet if that's the plan. Like, you're through with Joe Biden when this happens. And she says, oh, I don't think you understand. I'm not running for vice president. I'm running for president. And there's a boldness there to her that I also think kind of gets lost. I think we could have a whole separate hours long <laughs> conversation, both about the vice president, but also I do think there's something really interesting, at least to me, about the ways in which the most often the candidates for whom that public-private difference comes up is people who don't fit the traditional mold of what a candidate is supposed to be. Uh, women, candidates of color. Oh, I think that that's absolutely true. The, in the, the article that I wrote for The Atlantic, mm-hmm. there's a quote from uh, a woman named Kim Fox, who's the state's attorney in Cook County in Chicago, basically, who's a black woman who Harris mentored uh, mm-hmm. some. And she said to me, especially when you talk about people who've broken the ceiling, glass ceiling, you don't, like, we pay a lot of attention to that. We don't pay attention to the cuts you get on your head. That's right. I want to talk a little bit about sourcing. Get into so, it. Yeah. Sean Hannity was interested in this question too, Faz. So I think you and yeah, Sean Hannity, you know, it's obviously. That's great. <laughs> I, I'm more interested. I'm sure I'm coming at it a little bit different than Sean, Sean Hannity. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm kind of interested in, in your perspective as a journalist who, you know, from my take, right, for people who don't often like to talk, uh, here we go, uh, myself, you often see there are others who have stories they want to tell you, Isaac Devere, mm-hmm. and they want you to take it and, and report it. And, you know, I guess sometimes to my own frustration, I see people who want to weave narratives, you know, successfully do so because they can make them interesting yeah. and salacious. What role do you think journalists generally have in assessing the incentive or motivation of the people who want to tell you something? You know, there's an old Seymour Hirsch line that a source is a schmuck with a grudge, right? Like, um, I don't. That's great. I wish I believed that people talked to me because I was just so charming, <laughs> or because you know my dashing good looks. Um, that's not why people. Anybody who talks is because they have some reason to talk. And look, a lot of it is building relationships over time. Um, I spoke with both of you as I was writing this book. It was not the first conversation that I'd had with either of you. That is true of almost everybody that I talked to for the book. There were a couple people that was the first conversation, and God bless them, they talked anyway. But um, I think it's an important thing that sometimes people 
mean to lie, and sometimes they don't mean to lie, but they lie anyway, or like mm -hmm. they tell something that's not true because their memory is wrong, or because whatever, it gets a little twisted. And you or know, desire to put themselves in the middle yeah. of action. Yeah, of course. Um, right to seem important, and I think that you, a reporter, needs to be sensitive to all those things, to check things, to say like, oh, it's weird, like you're always. The main character of this story. Forrest Gump-like. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think how to say this. There is someone, Faz, that you have dealt with a lot who it's true that no matter what happens when a reporter asks that person the story, that person is always like a key player in it. I love this. I love this. Oh. <laughs> and I think the reporters have to be sophisticated and, and skeptical on the part of their audiences. And, you know, you're should call and check things, right? There are a lot of private conversations in the book that I get into. How do I know them? Well, I talk to people who were either in the conversations themselves or who the conversations were relayed to shortly afterwards, but certain lines or themes or specific instances of the conversation, when you hear it from four or five people, and then you start to say, okay, that's right. And then you check it around. And look, there's a sourcing note in the back of the book that basically says, I'm not telling you exactly who I talked to for any of this. But the sourcing note says is that I, I was working on this for four years. There were over 400 conversations. I actually think in a way that's an underestimate because mm -hmm. there were so many that I was having over the course of my day-to-day -day reporting that was informing this. So... I think that it's possible that there's something in there that I didn't get quite right, but I really tried the best that I could to get everything as right as I could, and I feel confident in all of it. As an example, there was, can I curse? Are we podcast rules here? Yeah, go um, for it. <laughs> so the, one of the early excerpts of the book, Ran in Politico, was about that debate between Biden and Harris, and it quotes... Joe Biden, as soon as it happens on stage, turning to Pete Buttigieg, who barely knew him at that point, and says... Well, that was some fucking bullshit. Mm. And then later, there's a call that Jill Biden is on, and she's talking about it. And she said, she's very mad about this, as they all were in Biden land. And she says, you know, with what he's done with his life to call him a racist, go fuck yourself. Okay, well, if those quotes weren't true, given that that's now the president and the first lady talking about the vice president, the White House would have denied them. Yeah. And you see, I think, in a gratifying way that they are being honest about what happened, and they're not denying them. And so, you know, it's about vetting this stuff, and it was hard. It took a lot of time. <laughs> Isaac, I want to zoom out for a moment. You know, I belovingly called your book a gossip, juicy gossip. <laughs> but I do think it's worth thinking about, like, what will people five or ten years from now take away from this period in the Democratic Party? Like, what is the story that we can tell about what happened over the last four years? The book ends with an interview that I did with Joe Biden. It was his first interview as president. So we were talking, we were talking over the phone because it was still COVID restrictions. And he's Joe Biden. So there was like a little chit chat at the beginning. And, you know, like I've covered him for a long time. So it was just like talking to people who knew each other, even though he's the president. It was weird that he's now the president. But I knew that I had limited time to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like steering him into the conversation. And I said, so, Mr. President, you know, I, I should, I guess, thank you to begin with, because for this book, <laughs> um, right, <laughs> hint, hint, we just settled on the title. And the title is going to be Battle for the Soul, which comes from what you said, the battle for the soul of this nation, right? And he said to me, in his very, like, he's got a sarcastic sense of humor, which doesn't often come out. And he said to me, yeah, well, the difference between you and me, pal, is I actually believe it. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and nice I said, dig, Isaac. <laughs> it's kidding on the square. <laughs> and I said to him, 
no, Mr. President, I actually think you were onto something here. And mm-hmm. I do, like, Amanda, to answer your question, I think that it's, this is a period and it's not done. We're still, I think, in the middle of it, where the country is sorting itself out in a big way. And it's happening, like, everything at the same time, economically, racially, about, like, how men and women relate to each other, politically. Like, it's all of it is happening. And I don't know what people will make of this period in 25 years exactly. It sort of depends on what happens over the next couple of years to determine that. But it is clear to me that this was a turning point moment for the country, and the election was a way of punctuating it. It could just be a temporary reprieve. That's what keeps me awake at night. Oh, yes, I, there's this moment in 2020 might have stopped the tide for a second, but 2022, House Republicans could come back in a big oh, way. 2024, so where are we with <laughs> Joe Biden? I think this hinges on the character of who Joe Biden is because we see somebody who's constantly kind of evolving. And I say that in a positive, mm-hmm. uh, respectful way where he's, you know, sees himself as governing in a progressive moment in history. But what we're going to need a little bit from Joe Biden, I think, is some brass knuckle policy. Politics. The things that we were reflecting on that Barack Obama didn't do in 2010, 2012, care about the DNC, care about state legislative races, care about the politics of the whole. This can't just merely be about Joe Biden preserving the conciliator, who's a very nice person who cares deep about, but rather preserving the Democratic brand and pro- Democratic wins mm-hmm. going into 22. And I think we're going to have to see, like, is this person, you know, ready to take charge of a party with brass knuckle politics and ensure that we keep the reins? And I think that 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 verdict is still out. I mean, we're going to see if we basically had a temporary reprieve or a a full one. Fast, I think your point on Biden is exactly right. We don't know exactly what the Biden presidency is going to be like. It seems like the start of it is more to your liking than you would have guessed. Yes, policy-wise, that's right. I'm Um, raising a political point, too. Yeah, right. But but those things are interrelated, right? Yes, And I think you already see that he cares more about the DNC than Obama ever did. It's not Um, hard. Right, (laughs) right. Bar is low. Going from (laughs) 0.1% caring to anything more. And so we'll see what that actually looks like. But look, the most important thing that will determine what the next couple of years look like and maybe the next 30 years is what happens with, I think, three things at this point. Number one, whether we're done, like we're over the hump on coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be an infection spike? Are there variants that are going to throw us right back to everything? If there is, that's a problem for Biden. If there's not, people will feel better about it, right? Number two, bound up in that, the economy. What happens and whether people feel like things are off to a better place, or even better for Biden if it's sort of like a roaring 20s kind of thing that people have been talking about. We don't know where that's going. And number three, obviously, bound up in this too, is what, like, are schools able to reopen and people able to get back to that kind of normal living? And those are things that affect their lives that's going to determine in a large way what happens in the midterms next year, whether the House flips to the Republicans. There's not the only factors, gerrymandering a big thing in there too, and other things as well. But the only chance that Biden and the Democrats have for things to go well in 2022 and then in 2024 is if those three things go Biden's way. All right, we need to take a short break and we'll be back with this fun conversation. Welcome back to Battleground. Let's continue our conversation with Isaac DeVere, author of Battle for the Soul. Isaac, something Faz and I have been shooting the shit on a little bit, and you've touched on, I think, throughout our conversation today, is the role of political journalism and like what it means to be a journalist covering these campaigns, how you see your role in it. And I'm curious, in your ideal world, 
what is the role of journalism in the political process? What does good political journalism look like? Knowing that there's a bunch of shit that makes it really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, good political journalism obviously looks like Battle for the Soul, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I, I mean, I, I think the this difference is... Uh, is between you and me is I believe the things <laughs> that I'm saying. That's, that's another thing you you didn't realize you had in common I mean, with Joe Bernie Biden. Would, I, I can imagine that Bernie Sanders would have said exactly this. So yes. I, I, the difference is I believe in transforming the American economy and political system. Yeah. Like when I say revolution, I mean yes, revolution. That's right. <laughs> Grassroots revolution. So – uh, like man, I, I I think that this is another crisis that we're having is a crisis of truth and fact and what people believe and what information they have for things. Journalists play a really important role there because there are so many different ways that people are getting information, and usually they're going toward information that verifies what they already believe. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's an important job for journalists, for reporters who actually dig in and have the facts, not like, oh, you think that's what's going on? You think that that's what people are talking about? Um, you know, you've written some hot take on Substack or like you did a tweet thread or whatever. Like you have to actually talk to people and go and see things. And there's so much more that I understand about politics than I did before I started covering the 2020 race. There's so much more, I'll just say this, like that I could see happening than people who were just watching it from home. I'll give you, Faz, just a perfect example of this. When Bernie Sanders had his heart attack and mm -hmm. came back and, you know, it's great that he was healthy. And then he had that rally in Queens. I'm at the rally watching how many people are showing up for it. And I texted my editor and I said, the story here is the heart attack is the best thing that ever happened to Bernie Sanders. And she was like, that's crazy. Bernie and would I not said, always agree with that. Probably. Well, that's fine. Um, politically. <laughs> he wants to have a heart attack. But no, yeah. no, no, no. Politically, politically, it was the best right. thing that ever right, happened. Right? right, right. right? I, I'm like, we're all glad that he recovered. But the point is, yes. I could see that because I was there and I could see yeah. what energy it was generating. And I wrote that as the story and I got such shit. From people that they were like, he had a heart attack. He's finished, and I was like, he. You, there were twenty. How many people were there? Twenty-three thousand. Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people. Similarly, like in talking about something we were talking about earlier, when Kamala Harris's campaign was falling apart, we could see it on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and people who were back in the green rooms didn't know that. They were like, oh, she's a star. And the reporters were like, there are like seven people at these events. <laughs> right? Before we close out, I want to know, what's the one story you had to leave out for space or for whatever reasons that you wish you could have included? Give me the director's cut. God, I don't know which of the stories didn't make it. That it, it's There's so many stories that are in there. And I say that not to be like pumping no, up the book. But it's they're, juicy. They're, 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 there's a lot that's there. I'll tell you, here's one that got cut actually for space. So Super Tuesday, when I was with Bloomberg in Florida, we land in West Palm Beach because the plan was he was going to do a rally in West Palm Beach miles from Mar-a-Lago and really troll Trump. And yeah. that was a right? And the plane lands. It was a private plane, like a 747 charter plane. And everybody gets off and we're all loading up into vans to go. And Bloomberg is just standing there on the tarmac, like looking at the sky, wistful. Mm -hmm. And he can tell it's over, you know. And he turns to 
one of his aides and he says, are my clubs on the plane? Because <laughs> he want to know if the golf clubs were there. <laughs> now, if he had really anticipated that there was a future presidential campaign going, um, there's no time for golfing. There's no time for golfing, my dude. And that, that actually might be why he's not president. You know? <laughs> Isaac, thank you so much for joining Faz and I for this conversation. Your book is out now, Battle Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. It's a juicy, gossipy, very incisive, very sharp. I'm sure we'll get you into some trouble book. I <laughs> love reading it. You speak glowingly of Run for Something. Therefore, it's, <laughs> it is the best book I've ever read. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Isaac, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, appreciate it. Good luck with the book. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks so much to Isaac DeVere for joining us on this episode of Battleground. It was an enlightening and fun conversation. I urge all of you listeners to please, again, contact us at 929-399-6748. That's our phone line. Leave us a voicemail or uh, email us at battleground at therecount.com. We want to hear from you. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 